Hi, I'm Michael, and welcome to Beyond the Screenplay. Today we are talking about Sunset Boulevard, the 1950 film directed by Billy Wilder, written by Charles Brackett, Billy Wilder, and D.M. Marshman Jr. I'm joined by the Lessons from the Screenplay team, Trisha Arand. Hello, everyone. Brian Bittner. Hello, hello. And Alex Cayeros. Hi. So this was a fun video to force me to revisit Sunset Boulevard, because I hadn't <laughs> seen it in a, a very long time, I think. Maybe 10 years ago when I was first really getting into film noir, I was kind of going through and watching all of the classic ones that you have to watch. And I remember kind of liking it, but kind of being off put a little bit by the protagonist and and not really enjoying or investing in it the way I had some of the other films that I was enjoying from this time period. Um, but upon revisiting it, I've, I've realized that I actually really like it and there's I've, I've formed a deeper appreciation for it. Mm. So thank you, Brian, for bringing it up and pitching it as an idea. Do you want to talk about why uh, you wanted to talk about Sunset Boulevard? Yeah, um, I, I had seen it before. Um, I saw it actually in my existentialism in film class in college, <laughs> nice. um, which is also where I saw like uh, The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance and mm -hmm. uh, I forget, but some some great stuff in there. And I loved it then and I hadn't seen it in a while. And the Vista Theater here in L.A. Uh, last year, I went to a 35 millimeter screening uh, on Sunset Boulevard, which is pretty cool. Um, and, uh, and I was just, first of all, just blown away by the movie. I just, I still think it's great. It was great to see it with an audience. Um, but I had remembered reading in John York's Into the Woods, the idea of basically the negative change arc, the idea that if, it, if it's a tragic story, it's almost like the upside down version of a normal change story where, mm -hmm. uh, at the midpoint, instead of making the choice that's going to make them victorious, they make the choice that's going to lead to their downfall. And in the crisis point, uh, it looks like they're going to be saved and everything could be there's hope instead of the crisis point being like the worst part of their life. Mm. So I just remember Sense of Boulevard is very neatly like it's one of those movies where the acts just like fade out and then fade into act two, fade out, fade into like it's very pronounced. So I could really tell where the midpoint was. And when he kisses Norma, I thought, ah, that's the midpoint. That's his choice. Uh-huh. And then there's the moment where he and Betty kiss. And I was like, ooh, it's the reverse crisis moment. I just got excited. I was like, here's all the things that I had recently read about, about this uh, negative change arc. So I had the idea of doing that. And then I looked at one of the books, Michael, that you had turned me on to, um, creating character arcs by Cam Wyland. And then she has not only a whole section on the negative change arc, but specifically the disillusionment arc where a character has hopes and dreams. And then at the end is just basically miserable. And I was like, yep, that's Sunset Boulevard. So we, <laughs> we put our heads together and we did that. And somehow we threw Parasite into the mix. And now we have a <laughs> Sunset Boulevard versus Parasite. Yeah, well, it, it was interesting that we hadn't talked about negative change arcs or sort of tragic arcs uh, at all on the channel before. And while we had started to work on this video, I think shortly after you had pitched it, Brian, is when I saw Parasite. And so I remember walking out of the theater in Parasite and kind of thinking like, this sort of feels like it has the same like arc structure as Sunset Boulevard. Mm -hmm. Like it's that same kind of disillusionment thing. It was an interesting process of bringing that up. And then it was like, well, let's talk about, let's do a different video about Parasite talking about symbols and all these things. But the comparison was just kind of there and out there. And we kept 
trying to do them as separate videos, <laughs> but there was just some gravity in me that I don't know. It was just, <laughs> right. it just seemed like such a, a crazy comparison that at some point it was like, I, I think we need I think we need to do this. Right. Yeah. I mean, it is it is this weird like character moves into this nice house and they kind of get everything they want at the midpoint and then things go wrong. And at the end, they're left worse off than when they started. It's like for two very different movies that even even plot wise, like they're, they're not even similar, but those sort of broad strokes are actually almost identical in a weird way. They both also end with the main character looking at the camera, which is bizarre and amazing. <laughs> oh, yeah. So. Parasite ending up winning Best Picture at the Oscars this year sort of reinforced something that I've secretly been like thinking about about negative change arcs for a long time. Um, I in, also in college, Brian, I wrote a paper actually about like tragic arcs um, because I, I was really interested. It, it was around the time or, or slightly after AFI had come out with their like top 100, you know, greatest movies. Mm -hmm. And the top three were Citizen Kane and The Godfather and Casablanca. And all three of those, I mean, Casablanca less so, but definitely Citizen Kane and The Godfather were these epic stories of like a tragic downfall. And I was just like, why in the world? These are not movies that you want to watch over and over again, necessarily, because they make you feel good. So why in the world? Like, what is quote unquote great about stories that are like this? Why do they kind of like stick with us? And so I got really interested in that. And of course, Sunset Boulevard is an amazing classic example of this. Um, but then it was super interesting that that also happened with Parasite, where it's like that movie not a happy ending, really bad on a lot of a lot of different levels. <laughs> and yet, for some reason, it has that resonance where we we can't stop thinking about it. Yeah. And, and it's interesting. I think that's, you know, thinking about Parasite and people's reactions to that. And then thinking back to my initial reaction to Sunset Boulevard. You know, I've mentioned on the podcast before, I, I had friends that liked Parasite, but weren't as into it mm. because after the midpoint, it takes this turn that is an unfamiliar turn in movies nowadays, mm. basically. Yeah. And I think that's kind of a similar thing that happened for me in, in Sunset Boulevard is that, you know, you have this protagonist and then he makes this decision that you don't agree with and you don't like. And, <laughs> and then the second choice. half is right. <laughs> yeah. this, this weird thing of like, well, why am I supposed to like care about you? You're, you're, can't you see you're doing this thing wrong? But I think it's the kind of story that you have to kind of develop a mm. taste for. And I think that's why I appreciated it more coming back to it. Um, and I'm curious if moving forward, there are going to be more movies like this since, as you, as you pointed out, Trisha, this has been this crazy success and I think resonated in a way that a lot of films haven't, right? Mm. Like everyone was saying, Parasite, finally the, the best picture of the year actually won best picture. Like, isn't that cool? Yeah. And so I wonder if moving forward, that's, that's going to be a trend. Mm. I was going to say that both with Parasite and with Sunset Boulevard, it, for me, when a disillusionment arc story like doesn't work for me the way it didn't work for some of your friends, Michael, it's because I truly am not enjoying it anymore at a certain point. Like there is that I can see the slide is happening. It's not going to end well. And I'm not really having any fun like mm. watching the slide. Mm -hmm. And I think with both Sunset Boulevard and with Parasite, I actually I'm enjoying it the whole time. Like I know things are not going to end well at this point, but like I. I'm kind of excited to see 
what's going to happen, how they're not going to end well. And, uh, and Sunset Boulevard, especially, I had not seen it before we had to watch it for this video. It was one of my many, you know, missing gaps in my film history collection. I really, really loved it. I thought the characters were so much fun. And my God, Norman Desmond, like yes. what a character. <laughs> I just loved her so much. Well, it's just so interesting. And I wonder if some of what you're talking about, Alex, has to do with tone, right? where both Parasite and Sunset Boulevard kind of have this comedic undertone to them where there's not jokes you're not like laughing out loud or anything but the absurdity of the situation like when uh joe gillis walks in and it's a monkey funeral and you're just like <laughs> i'm sorry <laughs> it's what which is one of the most disturbing things <laughs> yeah. i've ever seen it's disturbing it. yeah but it's so absurd you kind of laugh at it and i feel like this it's a similar thing to like a peach allergy right like in, in parasite mm -hmm. where it's like it's so far out there and, and it's so extreme that it makes you uncomfortable and unsettled in a way that haunts you. But in the moment kind of makes you laugh. And I think that that's as opposed to something like Citizen Kane, which to me feels like really oppressive in the second act as what you're talking about, Alex, with the slide going all the way right. down to the it doesn't feel fun at all in the way that these movies kind of managed to continue to feel fun. Yeah, and that's, I was going to say the same thing, basically, which is that there's a difference between a movie that's a downer because it has a, an unhappy ending for the protagonist and a movie that's a, just a downer to watch, like the experience right. of watching. Right. And <laughs> neither Parasite nor Sunset Boulevard are are hard to watch. They are very entertaining movies. And I think Sunset Boulevard it gets away with that because of the humor, like you were saying, Trisha, and, and the tone. And I'm I'm drawn I'm drawn to movies with the negative change arc, I think. And I'm also drawn to movies with that sort of dark sense of humor. And I think that that's what keeps this movie feeling so fun and watchable 70 years later. 70 years later, oh by the way. Um, it's so it watchable. Is, it's great. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But it's it always has this sort of jokey tone to it you know mm -hmm. the um uh, just billy wilder sense of humor in general you know when he says yeah. like uh you say the cutest things or i talked to a couple of yes men to me they said no mm -hmm. <laughs> but the, the one line that i feel like is so so fits the tone of the movie is when he says like back when norma was younger when max is saying oh, maharaja came around the world uh, just for one of her silk stockings. And then he later hung himself, or he strangled himself with it. <laughs> it's just mm -hmm. like, <laughs> like that is the the tone of the movie and that sort of absurd but really fun dark comic uh sense that actually makes it like never quite sure whether you're supposed to be laughing or kind of horrified and i think that that just makes it that much more entertaining it's like a film noir with screwball comedy dialogue you know right. which is a, a really bit. fun a really fun combo because a lot yeah. of the it's like whip you know whip smart fast exchanges that are really clever in this in this movie mm -hmm. that kind of go beyond the normal kind of film noir, hard-boiled detective kind of tone. It, it, it has an interesting mix there. And I, I really enjoyed that blend. And I, I especially see that in Joe and Betty's, um, like their repartee when they're going back and forth. <laughs> and so it almost helps to widen the gap between Norma and the younger generation, right? Mm. Where mm. Betty and Joe are going back and forth and she's dishing it back to him. And they're just, they're so adorable together. And you can tell mm -hmm. they're on the same wavelength. And then when Joe like quips at Norma or even sometimes he's totally sarcastic and she doesn't catch it at all. Right. She right. takes everything he says like dead seriously. It again you all think this is very funny, don't you? <laughs> <laughs> Perfect and correct. <laughs> yeah, it's it's that she's not on the same wavelength because she's from this older generation. 
And to her, it's all this like heightened drama. Whereas to them, it's sort of this like more cynical younger generation. Well, we're just cracking jokes about this kind of thing. It's really effective dialogue. I think a part of the tone that you're talking about where it is playful is also there with, you know, the cameos or Cecil Mm -hmm. B. DeMille playing himself. Uh I remember the first time I saw this movie and realized what was happening because i i knew enough to be like wait a minute that's actually like uh <laughs> good job michael you and, knew about and, cecil b DeMille. yeah uh and just being like that's that's so cool that they had cameos back in like the 1950s right. like that's weird that that's not a new thing because i've only seen that people were people right not only cameos but like the throwaway cameos of the waxworks with you know oh, buster keaton and, oh yeah and, and right. i just i love those sort of like almost irreverent cameos the um the, my favorite ever is confessions of a dangerous mind mm. it's they're they're doing the the dating game show or whichever show it was where the, the bachelorette can't see the three contestants and they're just talking mm-hmm. and she's keeps talking to number one and number one is like this like really goofy looking guy but she just keeps going back to him and the camera just pans past number two and three and it's matt damon and brad pitt uh-huh. <laughs> and they're both and they oh, both so just funny. are like they're like looking really bored waiting to be called on and that's the entire their entire presence in the movie <laughs> yeah well billy wilder here was operating on a meta level very consciously oh like, yeah and and Big time. Like William Holden was, you know, had first made a name for himself in the 30s and then kind of not really done anything with like not done anything big with his career in the 40s. And it was almost like this kind of like his character where he thought he had some success and then it kind of fell off and he wasn't getting the roles that he wanted. And so Billy Wilder was like, that's the kind of guy I need, the kind of guy who feels like a little bit desperate or wondering about his place in the industry. Um, and of course, much of this has been written about the character of Norma Desmond and the various aging silent film stars that she is based on. Gloria Swanson actually was like pretty successful on Broadway. She was a, a silent film star who hadn't made a ton of talkies. But then she went to Broadway and was like, she was doing fine. And and of course, was sane. And, you know, (laughs) made very conscious choices about her career. But in a way, he did tempt her out of retirement with this part because it had that meat to it. And so Billy Wilder in the casting here and, of course, all the cameos that we are just talking about was transmitting to the audience of verisimilitude about Hollywood. It's like these are stars playing themselves. You know who they are. Mm hmm. And it goes a level deeper, too, which is when you see her old silent film, that is a movie called Queen Kelly, Uh which was directed by Eric von Stroheim, a.k.a. Max von Meyerling in the movie. So the two of them had actually worked together. He directed her in a short film. They actually didn't really get along. I think she basically walked off the film. And then (laughs) he was one of these directors where they're like, he's going to be someone. And then his kind of directing, like that movie Mm -hmm. bombed and his directing career was kind of over and he kept acting. Her career kind of went off, at least in terms of movies, as you were saying, Trisha. Mm -hmm. So she was like more known for being a silent film star. So then you bring back these two people together, who one of whom was actually a director of this star it's like just so meta and it's crazy their backstory isn't that far off from the Uh, actual backstory yeah right (laughs) not at all and and i love a lot of the other choices that he made here too like with the costuming and how the characters are presented so you know he had edith head come along and do Mm -hmm. costume like huge costumes and everything for norma and she did william holden's costumes as well but for Eric von Stroheim and Nancy Olsen, who plays Betty Schaefer, he just had them wear their own clothes. Like 
Nancy Olsen thought she was going to get to like basically play a character dramatically different from who she really was. And he was like, no, your clothes are great. So like everything that she wears in this movie is just hers. And she very much was a young actress. And so that like ended up being a part of the backstory of Betty Schaefer's character. She's a failed actress who then like kind of becomes a writer. And I feel like her character is so delightful. Like oh, she, yeah. she really stands her. out. Yeah. As, as kind of like timeless in some way, there mm. is this like mm-hmm. this timeless youth to her where it feels like, I don't know. She doesn't feel like a character I'd expect to see in a movie that's 70 years old. Yeah. And just her dynamic with him, just again, the, the casting, as you were saying, is, is really interesting. But also, I think is because of the, the clear chemistry they all had. I think those relationships also help it stand the test of time because you can just see. Right. There's something there. And I also love that with Betty, you know, it's something I'm sure you magnetized to right away, Trisha, which is that her monologue is a different take on the same theme that all the other characters are going through, which is that she wasn't able to make it in her chosen field. You know, they didn't like my nose. Then they loved my nose, but they didn't like my acting. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Instead of either being disillusioned like Joe does and just seeing and saying, like, screw it, I'm leaving or clinging to this lie about how you know, she is, mm-hmm. she just stays level headed and she decides to keep trying in a, in a, you know, in the same field, but in a different position. And she just stays optimistic about it. And it's that, that nice thing where you have a character who sort of shows you how dumb the other characters are being, because it's like, no, you have <laughs> right. one character who's just is, is handling or dealing with the same thing you guys are dealing with, but dealing with it in a, an adult normal way. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's exactly what we were talking about in the Jurassic Park episode which is that all of the supporting characters are kind of built around the same theme. And so you see in that that story that Betty Schaefer tells, she's talking about like, yeah, I, the thing I planned didn't work out. And yet I have, you know, she embodies a different way. Mm-hmm. And we can talk about this more, but Max, you know, of course, kind of represents one potential way that William Holden's character could end up going. And then Betty Schaefer is very much the total opposite way. It's like, no, I mean, that didn't work out, but like, I still really like Hollywood or like, I'm still really willing to put in the work um, and and make a different kind of career in this business um, as opposed to living as a butler in an old <laughs> spooky house for the rest of my life, right. which is just such a wild decision. Right. Serving your ex-wife as yep. she brings in new younger men to... <laughs> Take over and marry. It is an insane path, but but there you go. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I love movies that are happy to play in the absurd, you know, especially Mm. when it's clear they know they're being absurd. And I think that's the sort of trick is that this movie is sort of melodramatic at times, but it also feels grounded. And it's sort of just it walks that really interesting line, which I think Billy Wilder always does. Like he always just knows where to play, you know, where where that just where to find that balance. Uh, I I always think it's really unfortunate because every time I've seen a Billy Wilder movie, I'm just like, this is amazing and feels so current yes and i think it's like it's a shame he's not quite the household name that like a hitchcock or john ford or like some of the other classic people are because it's like the apartment some like it hot sunset boulevard sabrina witness for the prosecution double indemnity the seven-year itch it's just like most casual 
film fans who like are somewhat familiar with classic films have probably seen or at least heard of three to six of these movies. And yet Billy Wilder is not like often named as like one of the best directors of all time. And I think he absolutely is. Because I think his movies feel uniquely fresh, like we've, we've been they saying. They, mm -hmm. they feel actually the most modern of a lot of, you know, more modern than Hitchcock, I would argue, you know, as far as just the, sure. the dialogue and the way the characters interact with each other. There's something so youthful and fresh about it still. The reason I, I fell in love with this movie in particular was because I think a lot of the comedy also comes from almost a sense of camp. There's that silent mm. film actor approach to acting, which almost reminds me of like a drag queen or like a it's it's there's a mm -hmm. almost this campy quality about it, the way that Gloria Swanson plays Norma. It's like she her whole life is still <laughs> silent film exactly. acting style. Right. And and to have that level of absurdity added into the mix, but also there's a reason for it. Like she has this history of being so uh, immersed in this over the top style of acting for the sound film era to have that contrasted with the modern acting style is really interesting to see in a movie. And going back to what you were saying, Brian, that in itself is like self-aware enough. The movie hangs a lantern on it where right. they, she does those performances where she's dressed up like Charlie Chaplin and like, <laughs> you know, and doing like silent film performances and, um, it calls it out in a really important way. That's like Norma is huge mm -hmm. and she acts that way in her private life. And she kind of knows that, right? It's, it's this like overly yeah melodramatic thing that actually works by calling more attention to it. Otherwise I think you would get that pushback from the audience of like, well, no one really acts like this, right? right? And so by highlighting that, it makes it, I mean, spooky, but great. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I said this way back on a previous episode when I, Sunset Boulevard was my, what am I watching? Uh, which was that like, I feel like by today's standards, she maybe we maybe want to see the like 90% version of that performance. Mm -hmm. But it it sort of doesn't matter because as you were saying, like it's sold by the fact that she, the character is in performance mode. Right. And she, the character, you know, her heyday was a style of movie that even in 1950 is already outdated. So she is acting in a way that other people don't act. And again, it works because the other, you know, female lead is Betty Schaefer, like the uh -huh. most normal character in the movie. <laughs> and then the two people spending the most time with Norma are Joe and Max, who, you know, Max is maybe absurd from who from his cho the choices he makes. But his performance is the most quiet, stilted performance of the movie on purpose, obviously. And then mm -hmm. you have Joe just looking at everything going, well, this is all ridiculous. So as long as and that's that's the way the filmmakers let the audience know, like, no, we know <laughs> we know <laughs> yeah. this is absurd, <laughs> but that's the point. Like, we're having fun. Come with mm -hmm. us. Talking about her acting style, just because I'm rewatching 30 Rock makes me think of Jenna, uh, yeah. Jenna from yes. 30 Rock yes. and yes. especially her she has the line where I know the Tony rules because I've been petitioning for them to add a category for living theatrically in normal life. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like she and Norma would get along. Right, well. right. Absolutely. For sure. There is also this interesting thing that I, because I, I was also looking at when this movie came out relative to some other movies from this time period. And I kind of had time timelines wrong. Like I didn't realize something like it hot came out not much later, but nine years later, mm -hmm. for some reason in my head, that was like a move from 1930s. I don't know. College Michael didn't pay attention to the dates <laughs> oh that much, God. but singing in the rain uh, came out two years later. And, mm -hmm. and I think one of the things I like about movies from this period is 
the the commentary on Hollywood that Hollywood had been around long enough and had gone through enough changes that there was now things to comment on and I think the changes that happened were more dramatic than we have now like going from you know no sound to sound is a big deal yeah. and black and white to color like that changes you know performance it changes all these things and there are still changes happening now but it's it's more like you know but now we have more cgi or things are in 4k instead of 1080 like right it mm-hmm. doesn't change the medium in in those same big ways yeah i was gonna say probably the biggest jump we have it's not even standard def to high def but it's probably like no cgi to crappy cgi to good cgi right. such, that, right. such that when you watch you know we talked about watching something like terminator 2 where you're like oh all of this actually looks pretty good or jurassic park but then movies from like 12 years later like the mid 2000s when they're like we can yeah. do anything now so let's do everything <laughs> and it's like mm. right <laughs> yeah even just like we use titanic as an example of a midpoint in this mm-hmm. and, and watching some of the shots from titanic which at the time were mind-blowing yep. just doing things they'd never done before now it looks like a video game cutscene a little bit and so right. there is this weird valley that happened where like you're saying brian suddenly you could do anything but not quite as well as you like wanted to but it was still like breathtaking for that time right but it does not age well and kind of the same thing that happened where when films started switching to shooting in digital they were shooting at 1080p which was a big deal at the time Mm -hmm. but it actually has less resolution than film right and so there can be a 4k version of sunset boulevard and there will never be a 4k version of say tron legacy right (laughs) yeah yeah i mean it's that's what's amazing about going and watching these old movies like in a theater actually on film is they look beautiful like they still Mm -hmm. look so good because film yeah in addition to commenting on the major shift that happened in hollywood in terms of like the technology and just like the direction that the industry moved from silent into like talking film i think more what this is commenting on is how hollywood treats people Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. which is Obvious to say, but it was something that when we were working on the video, we did get a little into the weeds about because we were talking about disillusionment arc. And, you know, we ended up focusing on uh, this idea that Joe has that money will solve all of his problems. And I think that that's a fair characterization of Joe's belief. But I think his belief system is actually probably a lot more complex because he's accessing or like. What he really believes in is success in Hollywood will solve all of his problems. And that will bring him to a large amount of money, as we see from Norma. But it will also bring him potentially fame. It will also bring him artistic fulfillment, possibly. And so that's kind of where, like, the the other side of the dream of, like, Betty Schaefer going, like, you know, I failed as an actress, but, like, Hollywood is still okay That's kind of like one way that this goes. But the other way that this goes is Hollywood like chews people up and spits them out and leaves them mentally deranged. Right. So that's like (laughs) the other side of the argument. And it's unfortunately because Hollywood itself as a monolith is a fairly complex American myth or like a illusion, I guess you could say, because it's fairly complex. I think that this movie actually says more about hollywood beyond like the desire for money does that make sense totally yeah absolutely well i think even the framing device of the whole movie is kind of like 
oh, it looks like just another Hollywood scandal, like some dead mm. body and mm-hmm. like, you know, yeah. like a sexy scandal with an aging movie star and a dead body right. in a pool. But here's the real story behind it. Some screenwriter you'd ever heard of. Right. He, he talks about himself as like just a B-list, you know, screenwriter, yep. you know, the way the tabloids would categorize people in this tawdry murder scene. Yeah, exactly. And again, that's also in there thematically, the contrast of public perception of like private lives, essentially. Right. So it's interesting now, of course, we have like the Internet and everything and and people are celebrities and actors um, and filmmakers are more accessible to us than ever before. But because of the way that the Hollywood system was operating at the time, the publicity machine was also a huge part of it. And so Sunset Boulevard is not the only movie about this, but it's definitely I want to say it's the darkest one. Right. Mm. Singing in the Rain is like maybe the funnest one. (laughs) Right. 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 But Sunset Boulevard is this really like Hollywood is toxic and it will kill you. That kind of idea. Well, the darkest one is a movie that was inspired by um, Sunset Boulevard, which is uh, Mulholland Drive. Right. Mm. Where David Lynch, like, there's a reason it's called Mulholland Drive. He literally was, you know, named it after another street in, uh, in, you know, in L.A. where the stars live. And it's funny because I had watched Twin Peaks before seeing Sunset Boulevard and his character on Twin Peaks is named Gordon Cole. So then when Gordon Cole, who's like just the random guy they call because he he wants the car <laughs> like the most who cares character in the movie like that's mm-hmm. where he got the name from although oh, interesting he, he, his character does spend most of the time sitting behind a desk on a phone so maybe that's why he was like you know what <laughs> um but uh but yeah basically he he did decide to make Mulholland Drive as a sort of like present day dark version of Sunset Boulevard yeah mm. and the player of course is like operating in this right. as well mm-hmm it's not my favorite movie, but it, it, it's like mm-hmm. a very dark and effective sort of look at like a studio system kind of thing. Right. I feel like LA Confidential also touches on it a little bit. Yeah, it's in there for sure. I think that's a, another reason why I like film noir films is because they often are in LA and like talking about all these things and dancing around this idea of old Hollywood and how it's, I feel like in some ways still like romanticized, mm-hmm. but it, it's always fun to see that then get broken apart and it'll be interesting to see if that idea of hollywood persists because i I think Mm. the idea of fame is changing so much like kind of like you were saying it was so much simpler back then where it was (laughs) like hollywood and the studios and the stars and everyone knew them and there's just there are the famous people and that's all there is and now there are people that are huge stars to like 20 people and everybody else has never heard of them. Mm-hmm. It'd be interesting to see if film, if there will be any films that kind of examine that change and how fame and the idea of Hollywood has changed and how that affects the younger generations and, and how that will all play out. Someone make that movie, basically. I, I want to see <laughs> about, a, a modern... About influencers? <laughs> God. The new famous people? Instagram Avenue? I don't know what you would call it. <laughs> I'd watch it. Really quick, circling back around to the the film noir aspect of the movie, I didn't realize it was a film noir going into it. I because hmm. I, I knew the subject matter. I knew it was about like a writer and an aging actress, and but I love that they're using a frustrated writer as the hard boiled detective character. Like that's, yeah. really, that's such a good stand in <laughs> of like they're both equally cynical. They're both equally <laughs> like have a dark outlook on life. It's perfect. Yeah. Um. So that was a really that was a fun surprise when the movie started. And the opening credit score was very film noir and his you know his voiceover 
narration was very film noir. And it's mm-hmm. like, oh, wait a minute. I'm watching a film noir. How cool. Yeah. And of course, this was shot by John F. Seitz, who is the cinematographer that shot Double Indemnity. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of the same kind of techniques you see. And Billy Wilder gave him like a lot of leeway. It was just like, shoot it. Make it look good. Great job. Uh, Billy Wilder, you know, is kind of one of our more famous like actors directors where he spent a lot of time working with the actors and not a ton of time with the camera. And so you have these amazing performances, of course, like from Gloria Swanson and William Holden and everybody. And then you have these amazing shots that aren't calling attention to themselves, but look incredible, like thinking about the huge rooms of the mansion and everything and like how the light you know sort of fills the space and filters into the space it feels so oppressive and gloomy in there all the time and even though the ceilings are high there's just like stuff crammed onto every wall and into every corner yeah. that makes you feel so claustrophobic hoarders it's great. Yeah. yeah it feels that way <laughs> yeah. it stresses me out to watch it yeah i feel like if you made this movie in color you would really have to fight the urge to have everything look lavish and beautiful you would almost mm. want to sort mm-hmm. of like decorate it in a in as drab a way as possible but being in black and white means you don't have to worry about that as much because you're like well everything is already black and white so it's not going to look lavish in the same way it would if it was just all the colors in the world and they definitely Mm -hmm. could have shot it in color and they decided not to which is like Mm. one of the greatest choices you could have made with this movie right going back to comparing it to parasite i think watching it again one of the things i was also struck by was the cinematography and the visual storytelling where it feels like no shot is wasted and each shot is taking you mm-hmm. it is carrying the story like perfectly for the time that it's on screen and i think that's one of the things that i you know i talked about in our parasite uh, episode is how much i love the cinematography and visually how it tells the story and obviously there one is a much more modern form of that storytelling but but i feel like the filmmaking happening in sunset boulevard feels just as precise and effortless as the filmmaking in, in Parasite. And I was really struck by that. And I think a, a lot of older films don't feel that way. You can mm-hmm. kind of feel maybe like, you know, they didn't have the money to like really do it in a cinematic way, you know, whatever that meant then. And it's the same thing with, you know, movies now. But just the the smoothness of this shot brings us here or the scene is all played in this one shot that moves to this perfect frame mm-hmm. and, you know, in the four, three aspect ratio that puts that person there and that person mm-hmm. there and it's all there and it's such a nice frame, but then it moves over to here and it's just so smooth and elegant. And I feel like it filmically, it creates a really fun ride, which I, I don't think I appreciated the first time around. And not to besmirch Billy Wilder as a visual director for the record, like <laughs> some of the most amazing shots in this are actually pure Billy Wilder. So he he did do like a decent amount of that visual storytelling. He also just had a really great relationship with John F. Seitz. And so thinking about the opening shot in the pool, he really wanted to film William Holden like from in the pool, right? Where you can see him floating face down which is such an iconic shot now and that was billy wilder like insisting that they figure out a way to get that so i'm not not throwing shade at all to billy wilder <laughs> right. as a visual no, director. i wasn't taking it as shade okay great. Have, yeah. i think an actor's director is also <laughs> yeah that's also why this movie is so good because yeah. the performances and the comic timing and the delivery of the dialogue is all pitch perfect absolutely i think maybe even the first time i heard about this movie might have been in the American Beauty commentary, mm. unless I'm a little mistaken, but I, I I think the writer of American Beauty, whose name I'm blanking on right now, Alan Ball. Ball. Thank you. High five. <laughs> <laughs> 
That was the cutest remote high five. Good job, <laughs> that was, you guys. It was really cute. But, I, you know, I'm probably somewhat mistaken, but cited this movie as another example of a film that begins with the dead protagonist mm-hmm. narrating what's happening. Right. Exactly. And just that's such a, a cool and fun device. Uh, and I, I remember liking that in American Beauty. And I think it works really great here, too. And I think adds just creates this kind of interesting tone and almost adds to the cynicism of the, the message in the end in, right. in some interesting way. I'm going to talk to you from beyond the grave and you're going to listen. <laughs> right. <laughs> the way he's treating his death is also kind of like yeah. un- unseriously. Not like, yeah. Yeah. yeah, here I am uh, dead. There I was dead. Yeah. The original opening scene actually was actually going to be in the morgue and all of the cadavers were talking to each other. So basically the frame is not wow. him talking to the audience. It's him telling the other <laughs> corpses the story of what happened. Yeah. That's dark. Yep. It's <laughs> different. If we can pivot a little bit, Brian, you originally wanted to talk more about some of the symbolism in this movie. And so I would love to hear from you about that and like sort of what you appreciate about the symbols in the movie. Uh, well, when I was researching this, one of the the quote that I loved, which is sort of a famous quote, is Billy Wilder said Sunset Boulevard is a movie about a guy who wanted a pool, got a pool and ultimately drowned in a pool, which we put in our video. And I do love the pool as a symbol throughout the movie where... The first time you see it, he right at the end of act one, he says a pool that was unoccupied. Wait, was it? And he just sees rats in the pool and they're all mm-hmm. gross and everything. And then as he starts to embrace this world, then the pool now she's, you know, Norma says, oh, I'll fill the pool and we'll have a nice summer and then fills the pool and he's happy in it and everything. And then, of course, at the end, uh, he even says to Betty, like, oh, look, there's a pool. And, you know, like sort of sarcastically, like, I don't care about this thing anymore. The thing that Mm -hmm. I wanted because you have that voiceover like, oh, he wanted a pool. Uh, He got a pool, but the price turned out to be a little high. Like that's in the first uh, the first monologue in the movie. And then ultimately, obviously, gets shot, dies in the pool. So I just loved that uh, symbolism, tying everything together just with this thing that's not even a main character in the movie. It's not like the pool shows up every five minutes. It's just sort of there in the background, but it sort of parallels the character arc as you go through the story. And then the other thing we had talked about, which I had read in Brian McDonald's book, Invisible Ink, was this idea of clones, which is where one character is a reflection of what could happen to the protagonist usually. So Mm -hmm. a very simple moment is in The Force Awakens when Rey is polishing her junk and she looks over and sees an old woman doing the same thing. And it sort of tells the audience like, well, this is where she's going to be in 50 Mm -hmm. years if she just hangs out. And then the one thing that struck me about Sunset Boulevard was basically the sort of inciting incident of the third act almost is Joe talking to Max and realizing that max was with norma they were married and he could have been successful and then now he's just her butler and basically a very clear sense of a, of a clone where it's like well buddy like there have been three husbands before and if you're going to be number four this is what you have to look forward to i'll start teaching you how to how to buttle now and then you can take over when i'm gone <laughs> you just i'm sorry you just said the word buttle that's right okay <laughs> Like don't doctor what, what it means to Butler. Yeah. Yeah. Is that real? No. Wow. Oh, yeah. okay. Michael was really impressed Eng- for a minute there. English is weird. I was like, I mean, yeah, a Butler is one who buttles. I would buy it. <laughs> it may be real in the sense of like, that was a word 50 years ago or, you know, right. 200 years right. ago or something like that. That's old timey word. Anymore. Right. Buttle harder. Yeah. 
Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> Relax. I really appreciate that, Brian, because as I was watching it again this time, I was paying attention to the pool as a symbol. Paying attention to that drew my attention to other symbols that are here. And so like going back to what we were saying earlier about the chimpanzee like funeral. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> it's the kind of imagery that you just like would die to get into a movie because it is so outrageous. Um, and I feel like as a writer, I end up doing this a lot where I'm like, okay, I need something totally weird and unique to this movie to use as like both a symbol and a plot device kind of. And so you end up making a list of like, what could go here? Um, a couple of years ago, I was working on a pilot about like teens and I had to come up with something that would get a teen suspended but not expelled that wouldn't couldn't be harmful to others but would be disturbing enough that it would be whatever and so I like made this long list and I called a bunch of people and I was like what is some you know erratic behavior or potentially lightly criminal behavior that a teen could do and I had a long long should have called list. me I've done a few of those <laughs> <laughs> I really should have called you but anyway the thing that I came up with was awful I had this teen like cut herself and like bled into some punch wow. <laughs> but what i'm saying is it's a chimpanzee funeral right like <laughs> you have to kind of as a writer you have to if you're writing about an unhinged character you have to come up with like unhinged behaviors a chimpanzee funeral is a great one but it's like never gonna be your first idea so it goes back to like the brainstorming process of like okay if this person is so disconnected to reality what might he or she do? And then coming up with potentially the most thematic version of what that is, which in this case is a pet, right? like a dead mm -hmm. pet, which is exactly what Joe ends up being. Right. April 2020, Trisha coins a new writing term, chimpanzee funeral. <laughs> it's a chimpanzee it's, it's funeral. It's such a good chimpanzee funeral. <laughs> Man, I really love that movie until it buried the chimp. No, it doesn't work. <laughs> Jump the shark, bury the chimp. Yeah. At some point, we'll get those words bolted yeah. in a video. Another quick pivot here. Uh, something I found, I read the screenplay, which is a great read, by the way. Like, it's one of the more entertaining screenplays I've read in terms of Definitely. not feeling like I'm, I'm just sort of like, okay, now I have to get through this part to get to the next part. <laughs> the only weird thing is it's, it does that thing where the stage direction and the voiceover are split like left and right columns so i'm like mm -hmm. wait how am i supposed to read this am i supposed to is, are my eyes supposed to go back and forth but you know uh that you get used to it pretty quickly but the one thing i was noticing is this movie is split into very th three very distinct acts like i was saying but the script is actually split into five sequences it's called and I thought, oh, how interesting. And then I did the math and it's exactly what we've talked about where the five act structure is the three act structure, but where the second act is basically three acts. And the math actually works out really well, which is section A and E are 45 and 47 scenes, quote unquote, like the just numbered basically mm -hmm. scenes or beats or however they've numbered them. And they're exactly what you would refer to as the first and third act, like where the camera, the lights fade go up and then the next thing and then b and d are both exactly 23 beats or scenes and then c is 32 so it's actually this like really nice satisfying symmetrical <laughs> kind of thing that's sort of a very clear three-act structure that is written in a five-act structure uh, and i just think it's like really cool for those of you screenwriter nerds who want to actually 
dissect something and see how the three X structure mm-hmm. and the five X structure are basically the same thing and how they can be separated. Like go get your hands in the Sunset Boulevard script and read it. Well, and I think it makes sense also because the tragic arcs are the more sort of Shakespearean old school right. five acts. And so I think these kinds of stories particularly lend themselves to that act structure, which is it's really fun to mm-hmm. see it in action. I think it's in story, actually, where Robert McKee does a specific breakdown on a tragic arc. And he specifically calls out like there's five movements to a tragic arc. Mm -hmm. Um, And then like if you look at The Godfather, the first three movements are the first movie and then the second two movements are the second movie. Hmm. Interesting. But yeah, like Macbeth, you know, and, and those kinds of like, yeah, classical tragic arcs tend to be a little bit more distinctive just because what you were talking about at the very beginning, Brian, with the midpoint decision being like, you won't be able to take it back, right? Mm-hmm. And, and that is the thing about the midpoint decision unique to tragic arcs is that you really won't be able to undo whatever that fatal choice was. Yeah, the thing, um, I hopefully we'll podcast about Collateral soon because I want to talk about all the things I didn't get to put in the video. Um, <laughs> mm-hmm. But the but the one that that struck me was that because the antagonist is on screen for almost the exact amount of time as the protagonist, he has his own complete arc and his midpoint is when he kills uh, Daniel, the jazz club owner. And it's mm. the moment where Jamie Foxx is saying, like, come on, you still can choose not to do this. And then he chooses to do it. And basically, it's like that's his midpoint where Jamie Foxx's midpoint was what's going to make him victorious. Vincent's midpoint is the thing that's going to, like you said, Trisha, there's no turning back from that. Like now at this point, he has fully committed to being this character and that's going to cause his downfall. In this video, you know, we talk about not just the protagonist, but we talk about Norma and Kitek, these mm-hmm. other characters that are running alongside and sort of have their own version of this arc. That was the thing that you guys brought up as we were developing the video. And one of the reasons this video ended up taking so long is because there was the entanglement of mm-hmm. that and those similarities between Sunset Boulevard and Parasite. Mm-hmm. But also like you, what you were talking about earlier, the symbolism in this movie is very strong. And we're also working on a video on Parasite about symbolism. These two videos were a little bit of a mess to, to get figured out. We've been living with the Parasite Sunset Boulevard <laughs> dilemma videos for a yeah. long time. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm ready for it to be done. Yeah. <laughs> New movies, please. Yeah. It has just been really fun to have a super modern, very relevant film next to this classic and to kind of be holding them both this whole time and see how many similarities there are. And that Sunset Boulevard holds up, you know, as always, if something stands the test of time, that means there are good lessons to examine and pull away, pull out of of that thing, which was really fun to get to do with this video. Also, Sunset Boulevard has perhaps the best, worst death scene of all time when he gets shot and falls into the pool. You're saying you don't <laughs> like his performance of getting shot? I mean, I love it. Uh, <laughs> I don't know that it's accurate or the most convincing, but I love it. Every time I watch it, I'm excited about it. I think it's a choice that he's sort of almost it doesn't compute that he's gotten shot. So that's why he's Mm. still trying to like pick up his suit. He's like, no, I'm just I'm trying to get out of here. And he's like, his brain is not in. I'm (laughs) I've literally been shot and I'm going to die mode. His brain is in. I just need to walk out of here mode. Uh, And I think whether or not it's a good choice, whether or not it's a choice that makes sense 70 years later, I don't know. But I think that it's not just like he thought that was a good way to get shot in a movie. I think it was at least a choice. For sure. I, 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 all of that is being telegraphed. And I think that is the right thing. Like mm. you are getting him 
disoriented and can't even believe what's happening to him. I think it's just the old moviness of like right. her and the gun and just like the flash and the bang and then another bang and he just kind of reacts and there's no, you know, modern movies you like see there's some kind of, uh, you know, reaction you know, a squib goes off and you see the gunshot happening. Blood is the word you're looking for. Blood. Right. Yeah. Sometimes <laughs> there's blood. Yeah. If it's beyond PG-13 or whatever. Yeah. There's no blood in the pool. I just want to say this, though. At this time, they were dealing with the censors. Mm. Right. And so there were a lot of things that they simply couldn't show. But also, Billy Wilder was really pushing the envelope in terms of content that the censors would even allow. And so, like, even in that scene where, you know, William Holden, Joe kisses Norma, they kind of like fade out, right? But And mm-hmm. we all understand that now he's a kept man. Right. And like, we kind of get what the relationship is. And so it, it's it's very obvious that they have a sexual relationship. And that's why when Norma calls Betty on the phone and is like, do you know where he lives and how he lives, right? For an unmarried man and woman to be living together, there was no doubt in the mind of the viewer what their relationship is. And that was very touchy subject material at the time. And Billy Wilder really was pushing it. And so now you have something like Parasite where unless we like see the eruption of violence that happened and like all the blood, um, which is, you know, beautifully handled in Parasite. But unless we see that, we kind of don't buy it. But I think at the time, the effect on the audience would have been still very strong and visceral. Um, mm-hmm. to the, both the violence and some of the other kind of edgy content in here. Well, for sure, the other stuff, I think it still is pretty effective. They're still dealing with things that I think are not super commonly dealt with in definitely major yeah. pictures. And Twisted stuff. relationships. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Stuff. Yeah. All I'm saying is I love the melodramatic 1950s <laughs> style. Of all, everything it's doing is great. And it's just it's that over the top dramatic thing. That's I don't know. I, I think it's fun. And just a little goofy. Fine. I just want to call it real quick to the other smaller performances. Michael, you mentioned Cecil B. DeMille. Um, and I just, I love his performance in this. Like he's, he's, you know, you maybe could say like, oh, he's clearly not really an actor, but he's just really sympathetic in his performance. And I just it, like, he's really believable. And then Jack Webb as Artie. I, when I was a kid, I used to watch Dragnet, the TV show. And mm-hmm. it was just Jack Webb is this old, weathered, never smiles cop. And then I saw when I was watching the movie, Last year, I saw his name pop up at the beginning and I thought, oh, okay, Jack Webb's in this. And then a good 10 minutes into like seeing Artie, I eventually put it together and I was like, oh, Jack Webb's this like young, happy go lucky guy. And that doesn't make any sense to my brain, but I recognize it's the same face. Yeah. That's who that is. Yeah. Fascinating. Yeah. Cool. And, and just, I love that moment on the, the lot where it's such a critical moment for this, where we start to get inside of Norma's delusion a bit where they show up to the Paramount lot and there is all of this like veneration around her. And they're like, Oh my God, Norma Desmond mm-hmm. is here. Like, and, and then they like, of course that amazing scene in the soundstage where they turn the spotlight and it's pointed right at her and everyone's like, Oh, Norma Desmond is here. I think if you didn't have that scene, you would really just be able to write her off in a way that I, it wouldn't work for the movie to be as compelling as it is you have to mm-hmm. like see that norma's delusion is based in a reality that she was potentially fed i mean that she has been living in for so many years she was getting you know thousands of letters of fan mail she was this revered movie star and so it's not like she came up with it out of nowhere you have to have that scene it's so beautiful and it reminds me that in order to have the contrast right 
or that rich thematic argument, which is what we've been talking about recently, like we talked about in Jurassic Park, both sides kind of have to be compelling. And so that scene really imbues Norma's like delusion with real power. And I think you have to have it. It's Mm -hmm. brilliant. Yeah, agreed. I love the Beyond the Screenplay Patreon, not just because it's where we get support to keep making the show, though that certainly helps, and thank you to all of our patrons, but because it's a place where we get to interact with all of you. The great thing about creating content on the internet is that it can quickly go out to a lot of people, but it also goes out quietly. With podcasts especially, there's no comments or even likes. All we see is the number of plays. And while that's great, don't get me wrong, it's not the same as getting a message from a patron saying that our series on Star Wars was an important part of their journey leading up to episode nine. Aww. To provide that service. It's important part to, I think, our journeys too. Definitely. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> Cathartic. Yes. yes. Or reading uh, follow-up discussions and the comments of our patron-exclusive Scott Pilgrim versus the World episode. There are a lot of interesting theories about why it bombed at the box office. Mm-hmm. That was cool to look at. Or even just chatting on Discord with a patron who just wanted to let Brian know that he also remembers the film The Arrival with Charlie Sheen. Yeah. <laughs> Backwards legs. Congratulations. Wow. There, there are two of you. <laughs> Solidarity. So Patreon is the place where you can support Beyond the Screenplay, but it's also the place where we get to interact with the podcast community. Both things that we are very, very grateful for. So consider becoming a patron on Patreon to help us make more episodes. And so you too can tease me about my midpoint obsession. (laughs) Back to the episode. Why don't we go around and say what lessons we're going to take away from Sunset Boulevard. Alex, would you like to start? Sure. I think we've been mentioning often in this podcast how much we all love Betty and just what a charming, lovely character she is. And I think that's my lesson is that you really need that character in a movie that otherwise has like a cynical protagonist or has that kind of downward spiral for me to really get engaged and to still have hope for the protagonist and to still be kind of with the characters all the way through the ending. You need that person that you really just are in love with and agree with and is kind of still giving hope to the doomed protagonist all the way up till the end. That's what keeps me invested. And so I think that was my lesson is even if you're doing a disillusionment arc, it's going to end badly. And that midpoint decision has already sealed the fate. Mm-hmm. I, I still want to have some false hope, you know, and, and having mm-hmm. a character like Betty in there providing that hope is really useful. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Because otherwise it's just people being gloomy the whole time and you don't care. And it's right. like, ugh, why am I watching Annihilation right now? And a lot of my favorite <laughs> scenes. <laughs> I actually... Right before we recorded, I was thinking about Annihilation uh, on our Patreon podcast, where I remember you saying, Michael, like, if your protagonist never smiles once in the movie, maybe there's a problem. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. I was going to say some of my favorite scenes uh, with uh, Joe and Betty are in the second half of the movie. You know, yeah. mm-hmm. when things are like theoretically getting worse overall, uh, some of their most charming, wonderful stuff is there. So it, it really makes you like I'm, I'm really rooting for them through yeah. all the way to the end. Yeah. And that's what makes it a tragedy. Right. If there's no hope yeah. for there to not be something tragic to happen, it's not a tragedy. It's just depressing. Mm. Yeah. Um, Trisha. Um, I'm going to go back to symbols really quick. And the biggest one that none of us have talked about yet or very much is the house here. 
Mm. And it's the same in Parasite, where the house itself has such a huge presence in the movie. And I think the reason why these houses are so iconic, which they are in film history, both of them now, is because they are a really, really clever embodiment of a fairly complex belief system, right? So in Parasite, the house is operating as um, a symbol of a whole life that Kiwu wants. It has to do with like sophistication and money and family. It's it's tied up in all of these things. And so, and of course, the parks living in it helps to enrich the symbol as well. In Sunset Boulevard, the house is a perfect representation of Joe's like aspirational beliefs. And we said it in the video, the house itself is a really smart representation of success in Hollywood, which is a complex dream. But when you can concretify it with, I said it, uh, <laughs> with concretized. Yeah, I was going to say, screw you, concretized. Trisha doesn't like you. She's using her own word. <laughs> like, I got buttle. it. Yeah, you buttled it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> when you can manifest a complex idea with a symbol, that's what film does best. Like, don't, don't have them say 500 words about it. Just put an image on the screen that right. the audience can see. And then we can dive into all of the different aspects of what it represents. We can parse that visually. And then like it sort of seeps into your subconscious. So just both of the homes, but especially, yeah, Norma's home in Sunset Boulevard is a uh, really, really gorgeously designed symbol. Yeah, absolutely. And the way it's revealed is so good. Just like oh, the stages so of seeing it and, and yeah. It's just really good. Mm -hmm. But it's actually one of the main images I remember from the first time I watched it was just him arriving and looking at the house and just, yeah, yeah that image is really, really powerful. Mm -hmm. Brian? Mostly what we talked about, which is just, I think that the negative change arc, you do need those ups and downs. It doesn't work as well if you're just watching a character just get worse and worse, you know, mm -hmm. especially like you were saying, Alex, like having that hope and having that sort of levity in the second act means that you are not just watching Joe just be miserable for a little second hour of the movie and then also in along that same vein is you can play in the absurd like let's if you're going to tell us a dark story do it in a fun and silly way if you think about sunset boulevard and parasite and the coen brothers kubrick oliver mm -hmm. stone david lynch like they are all operating in this most of their movies are negative in some way, whether they're actually telling a negative change story or just a sort of hopeless story or a story with just a lot of dark themes in it. But they're always doing it in this fun, kind of silly way where some of them are more <laughs> staying true to reality than others. But no matter what, there's just this sense of like, we're look, we're in like crazy movie mode and we can just mm -hmm. enjoy it. And that also does allow for more things like symbols, like we were talking about, because you mm -hmm. can you can have dead monkeys in your movie and and people are going to be like, what's going on? But in a fun, weird, they're talking about it later kind of way, not in a well. I was, you know, taken out of the movie as soon as the dead monkey showed up because that's not <laughs> like we're not operating right. in this movie that has to be completely realistic because uh, that's not the point. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Chimpanzee funeral. That's that what, what it is. is. <laughs> <laughs> Bury the chimps. <laughs> Absolutely. Because I think it's also kind of like you were saying, Trisha, like you're making a movie. Like don't just make right. something realistic. Like we live in reality. Like have some fun. Make it heightened. Make it fun. Make it engaging in some other way. Don't just bum us out the whole time. Right. Yeah. But also find the balance where you're not just bouncing around in crazy land all the time because then 
right. people aren't going to be engaged. I think that's the tricky part. And that's like I was saying what Billy Wilder did beautifully. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Not too bouncy. Not too bouncy. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I think for me, the thing I appreciate a lot in this screenplay and revisiting it is kind of what you were talking about earlier, Brian, the idea of clones. Mm-hmm. And the very first video on the channel kind of talks about this a little bit, the Gone Girl video, because Truby refers to them uh, as subplot characters, which is kind of like a slight variation on on clones. But I think that meaning is really important. You know, having characters that spring from the protagonist, like you've been saying, mm-hmm. Trisha. And yeah, I think because all of the characters in this film are so clearly rendered, and makes it a very accessible example of that, where you have the protagonist, you have Betty, who is youthful and represents you know the right path, and you have Max, who is super serious about everything and kind of shows the dark potential future. You see Joe going between them and Norma, and it's easy to track how having those different people in his life create this gravity that push and pull him away and toward the lie and the truth, the thing that he should do, but ultimately doesn't. Kind of. He tries to, and then he he gets shot. Right. (laughs) So yeah, so in my continuing quest to find clear examples of these techniques, uh, I think this film is a really good example of the technique of creating clones of the protagonist. Yeah, totally. What's everyone been watching? Trisha. So on a recent patreon episode we were doing a q a and somebody asked us what are the popular movies that we have never seen mm. and this drove me to the afi top 100 list and i like actually went through the thing and like checked off all the ones that i've seen one of the ones that i hadn't seen that actually didn't fall into either category i mentioned on that podcast was cabaret from 1972 mm. Uh, a movie I've been trying to watch for approximately 20 years. And <laughs> I got around to it. It's, you know what? You don't need me to tell you this, but it's really good. It's really, really great. It's a Fosse movie starring Liza Minnelli and Michael York. You don't need me to tell you any of this. It's one of the best movies ever. I had an amazing time watching it. You know, uh, I've been watching a lot of movies from the 70s lately, but I've also been really interested in musicals and movie musicals and like what sort of the history and the future of musicals might be. This movie is operating in a really interesting space in terms of movie musicals because all of the musical numbers are like a stage show. So no one is just like bursting into song in their everyday life. But it's incredibly stylistically cut. It's it's just it's great. You all know that already, or I hope you do. And if not, go watch Cabaret. It's fantastic. Yeah, I feel like that's another one where I'm the same way, where like I've been meaning to watch it for forever. Like my dad would always uh, when I would watch Moulin Rouge or Chicago or whatever, he would always be like, Bob Posse. No, 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 no. no. Bob Posse. He was the real. He, he, you, your dad was right. <laughs> yes. Bob Posse. Cabaret. Awesome. Brian? As of this recording, the last season of Better Call Saul just wrapped up. Oh. Yeah. And I I, I like the show fine from the beginning, but my biggest problem was that it felt like two different shows. It was this sort of gritty Breaking Bad prequel with Mike and a lot of the like goons from uh, the from Breaking Bad and stuff. And then it was this quirky law comedy with Jimmy McGill, aka Saul Goodman, just kind of like being a shyster. And I was like, why is this the same show? It's just they like didn't actually cross over all that much, which is just really weird. And uh, and both of those things were good. 
And I think both those things have gotten better over time. And this season, especially, they've brought the storylines together in a way that makes a lot of sense. The tone of the show feels more cohesive and the actual characters are interacting more in a way that's very satisfying. So, you know, you have Bob Odenkirk's Jimmy McGill sort of turning into this Saul Goodman character. Mike mm -hmm. Ehrmantraut and Gus Fring are back. There's a really cool appearance by a pretty big Breaking Bad cast member, which I won't spoil. <laughs> and then actually, maybe my favorite character on the show is uh, Kim Wexler, who is Jimmy's love interest, basically. And she's played by Rhea Seahorn. And her character is just keeps getting better and better. And also Rhea Seahorn's performance just really sells it. And she she has an amazing, amazing moment in uh I won't say which episode in case you're watching it, but in one of the episodes, she just has an amazing like kick-ass moment that's just like, wow. So yeah, if you are someone who started watching the show back when it came out and just sort of thought, eh, it's kind of not for me, I think you if you make it to season like three, four, five, somewhere around there, you'll start to feel like you are watching a Breaking Bad spinoff that feels like what you would want it to be. Nice. Interesting. Cool. Alex? So I binged all two seasons of the Netflix German show Dark in the last couple mm. weeks. No. Nice. Uh, and I cannot recommend it enough if you are into uh, very twisty, confusing, but ultimately, I think, actually all, all kind of adds up uh, time travel. Because it is, you know, I've, I've been wanting more time travel in my life i wrote <laughs> you love time travel <laughs> my future film script that i wrote is essentially me trying to do the t type of time travel movie that i've been wanting to see and this basically expanded the like puzzle box that i was trying to do in a 90 minute movie into three seasons of content i think it's a three season arc it's they're going to end it next season maybe it won't hold together by the end because it Damn, by the end of season two, I'm like, I don't know about this. This is getting really <laughs> messy. <laughs> but but it's pretty astonishing feat uh, so far. It, it's it's a really amazing commitment to we are actually going to map out like the sprawling cast of characters across like different decades of time and what's influencing what and who's gone where and what, mm. you know, how old are they now because they went back in time and now they're this age in this it's just crazy so if you're down for a wild ride where you can kind of barely keep up uh check out dark it's great you're kind of selling me on it i didn't know it was about time travel that's awesome yeah yeah and, and they, they say that it's not that's not really a spoiler it's like up front they say right like time travel stuff mm -hmm. um but cool. the way it unfolds is really fun to watch nice have we talked about the short film that we made the stealing time time travel film on, on i don't podcast. know but that, that is like the source of it all for me you know because that was right. like our mini version of the type of time travel we both respect you know and then my feature is kind of a blown up version of that and i think dark once again i can't say for sure where it's going because it's a three season arc and maybe it's going to all conclude in a way that is not our preferred model of time travel michael <laughs> but <laughs> up until like end of season two it it's mostly seem, seems to be mm -hmm. truly doing a, a really ambitious uh time travel story yeah nice cool but i, I know you're very judgy about that michael so you know, <laughs> yeah. i am we'll put the link to stealing time in the show notes for people for people who want to see what a real time travel movie looks <laughs> <Okay>. like <laughs> <laughs> so i've been playing half-life alex 
so for people that aren't familiar with Half-Life, Half-Life and Half-Life 2 were these two video games that kind of both like set the bar for like what video games could be that came out a long time ago, like 1998. And there's kind of been this forever joke on the internet of like Half-Life 3 confirmed because they they made two and some expansions and then promised to make another one that never did. But then last year, the company announced actually new Half-Life confirmed uh, and it's coming next year and it's going to be VR. And so it, it came out uh, a couple months ago and I've been playing it and it's it's just it's really, really fun. It feels like another landmark mm-hmm. game, you know, that's it's doing this thing where it's having to map kind of these traditional video game things to the VR medium. And it does it in a really impressive way. You know, it's like, you know, if you want to crouch and look under something in a video game, you press the crouch button and then the, you know, the view goes down. But in VR, you're like literally getting on the floor and putting your head on the ground to like look under the garage door to see what's behind it or whatever. Um, and, and because it's VR, it's super immersive obviously and like i'm i'm pretty used to vr like i don't really get like motion sick anymore like i have my mm-hmm. vr legs but there is this moment that i'm pretty sure is the most afraid i've ever Whoa. been like like i was once on an airplane where the turbulence was so bad that, like things were falling out of the overhead compartments and, like people were screaming like mm. a, a woman literally was like this is the end Jesus. and i was just so sure i was going to die uh, this is second to that oh my <laughs> because of it. so this thing happened and I screamed in my living room and like my, my girlfriend like came out and was like what's wrong because it was it was a scream of death because I was dying in the video oh game my and my body thought I was dying but it's so fun and it's so good <laughs> and it's stressful and so that's that's why I haven't finished it yet but yeah it's just it's really fun and it's a really uh, impressive feat that they've done so um so yeah, so that's what I'm doing. Trisha, you should never in a million years do this. I never will. No, no, no. <laughs> I mean, video games that are like about scary stuff anyway. So like, um, what's like the most famous zombie one that's like from the 90s? Resident Evil. Yeah, thank you. I, I played that with like a, my best friend in like middle school and it stressed me out so <laughs> much. I was like, zombies are just jumping out from everywhere. I'm not playing this game. This is the worst <laughs> thing ever. So thank you yeah. for adding to the list of things I won't play. I remember being in middle school playing Resident Evil 2 and having to put on Big Willie style <laughs> Will Smith's <laughs> album uh, on repeat so I wouldn't be so afraid. To calm your nerves. Yeah, so I have this like weird association now. <laughs> now that album terrifies you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, awesome. This has been our conversation on Sunset Boulevard. Thank you to everyone for listening. Thank you to the patrons for supporting the show and making it possible. And we will see you in the next episode. Bye, everybody. Bye. Bye.